This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 29th, the anonymous sex question box edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Eliza, age seven, and Leo, who is three and a half. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a journalist and podcaster. I live in New Hampshire, and my kids are Henry, who's 16, Teddy, who's 15, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 17. And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster based in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 15. Today on our show, we've got a question from a mom whose daughter has a mysterious and ambiguous genetic abnormality. First up, though, let's do triumphs and fails. I have a, an ongoing fail that I'm, I'm elevating to the status of like mom and dad are fighting fail in part as an accountability measure because I got to get on this. Um, Eliza got a bike for her birthday. She's had it now for almost five months. I have not taught her to ride it. In my defense, it's been winter. The weather has not always been great. If I take both of them out to the park and they're wearing their big coats and I'm supposed to like teach her how to ride a bike and he's standing there shivering and that's no good. And But also I am nervous that I'm not going to really know how to teach somebody how to ride a bike or that she's mm-hmm. going to have a hard time getting it because she is mm. – that kind of stuff doesn't always come easy to her. Um, and I, I think now that it's been several months and it's time for me to categorize, there's been some nice weather weekends and, and um, it's time for me to categorize this as a fail in the hope that like in a couple of weeks <laughs> I can tell you about the triumph of like I taught her how to ride the bike. Yep. That's a tough one. Kevin uh, never taught Lily how to ride a bike. She doesn't know how to ride a bike. She's, That's what uh, I'm eight, afraid of. 17 Whoa. years old. And yeah. it's That's, because uh, he and her terrifying. mom... Yeah, they had so much anxiety about her not being good at it and um, having an accident and all that stuff because she, you know, she's a, a cl- she was a klutzier little kid than the other kids were. And um, I was always it was was one of the things that we like argued about a lot when she was younger. But yeah, she doesn't know how to do it. So that's that's yeah. You if you want if you don't want to have a freak who doesn't know how to ride a bike, get on it, Gabe. Right, you got to avoid the <laughs> self fulfilling prophecy. She'll probably be great at riding a bike. She's probably going to win the Tour de France, and we're going to come back to this podcast. <laughs> All right. Um, That's my fail. Rebecca, what about you? Triumph or fail? Well, I've got a quick triumph, which is that Henry made us a pie from scratch last night, but that's not what I'm going to talk about. It was really good. Uh, But uh, the fail is I actually got an email from a listener to this show who pointed out that often when I introduce who my kids are at the beginning of the show, I say my son's Henry, who is 16, and Teddy, who is 15, and then I sometimes say my beautiful stepdaughter, Lily, who is 17. And this listener, I think, Mm -hmm. correctly pointed out that it's a little bit sexist that I would feel the need to use that adjective or only use that adjective toward her. Um, But I do want to say that is a fail. But what the listener doesn't know, perhaps, is that Henry 
who is in the credits of two other podcasts that we produce here because he works on them, is known in those credits as our very handsome line producer, Henry Lavoie. And um, <laughs> I, I do think that I was trying to maybe compensate for that a little bit by describing Lily as my beautiful stepdaughter, mm-hmm. Lily, uh, because there has been some eye rolling at the constant talking on social media about Henry Lavoie as the very handsome line producer, Henry Lavoie. So that is the origin of that. And uh, I don't disagree that um, it is not the right message to be sending to just introduce girls as beautiful being like the obvious adjective. Obviously, Lily is also bright, ambitious, cool, fun, all the things that you'd possibly want in a daughter or stepdaughter. Um, so my bad. I'll do my best to curb it in the future. But there is an origin story. I just wanted to clarify. I, I think it's too bad that Teddy is so hideous that you can't even characterize his appearance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're right. You're right. He's a, a troll. Shame. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. And it is, it Teddy, is, who we fun. keep in a closet. <laughs> My closet son, Teddy. You know, with the, those, the, there's no competitive like stuff between Teddy and Lily at all, but there is a little bit between uh, Henry and Lily because they're so much more similar in age. And, you know, Henry's a, Lily's a senior in high school. Henry's a junior. Henry's is like super high achiever. Lily's about to go to college. So, you know, I do sometimes maybe play into that a little bit, <laughs> the overcompensation, you know? Well, that but that is the thing when you have two kids is like this feeling of you sort of feel like you do a lot of something with one kid, so you try to match it with the other kid, but then the first kid is like, but it it feels like you're specifically just singling out the second kid, but they, no one knows that you're doing it in response to the. It just it gets messy. It's hard. I mean, right. you, there is that constant feeling of competition. Yeah, there's that thing of you are so smart, and of course you are also very smart. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, well, why am I also smart? Why wasn't I so smart to begin with? <laughs> like, what's that about, Dad? <laughs> oh, we do have fun. Uh, Carvel, triumph or fail? Uh, I have. I, it might have been a parenting fail, but an educational system triumph. This morning, I was riding in the car with Georgia, and we're on our way to school, and she just blurted out a sex fact. That I, I don't even think I can repeat it on the air. She just said it out. Dad, did you know that blah, 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 blah? And I was like, the what? Like, how? why are you saying these words? Like, what is this? Well, you got, you got to give us a little more than that. Come I on. really, I don't know if I... Is there a metaphor? Okay, I'll say it. <laughs> well, that's the point. No, there's no... She goes, literally, she goes, literally, we were in the car, moment of silence, and she goes, Dad, my teacher says, come taste like salt. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> Why, where would that sentence, how would that be a thing? That's literally what she said. And I was like, I mean, I was like, I joked. I was like, did my 12-year-old daughter just say that to me at 8, 15 in the morning? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, what is that? She's like, oh, that was one of the questions. So they take this sex ed class and they, there's like, they do the curriculum, but then there's also this private question box where kids can ask any question that they have about anything. They can put it on a box and the teacher will answer them the questions are anonymous. <clears throat> and so Georgia was like, yes, that's that's what she said. She wasn't asking me. She was announcing it as a fact. And I was like, I don't really know what to say to that. And then it opened up this whole conversation about the way sex is being taught and what have you. And we went, it was really interesting because I, I like realized how incredibly uncomfortable I was with every aspect of the conversation. And so I was asking her like, well, what is, 
does, is there any teacher's questions that your teacher doesn't answer? And she's like, yeah, she can't answer any personal questions. I was like, well, what? She was like, like some kid asked, when's the last time your husband gave it to you? And I was like, <laughs> a 57-year-old man in your class? Like, what the fuck? Who says that? <laughs> like, so we had like a laugh around that. So she was like, she won't answer any personal questions, but she'll answer any questions. And she, start, and she was like giving me examples of all these questions that were both silly, but also the kinds of things that you, questions you have about sex when you're trying to make sense of the, you know, when you're like 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. And, um, and so this is, so like we, the conversation unfolded more and more. And like, I like try to be, you know, I consider myself like a cool hip with it, dad. He said, you know, finger gun pointingly, but (laughs) the reality is like, (laughs) this actually made me super uncomfortable. And I was like, I was like, whoa. And, and so the conversation continued and I was aware that I had this discomfort about it. And I was sort of joking with Georgia about it, but also, but she did, she had so little, she was just this and the kid said that, and we heard learn this. And I used to think that, but then my teacher said this and everything. And so, um, at the end of it, she said, she said, the other thing, the other question I have for you, dad is like, why is everyone so embarrassed about sex? Like, obviously it happens. Obviously everyone does it. Like we're all here. So why does everyone like super embarrassed about it? And I was like, I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't know because we, we were all shamed for it growing up. And like all we were ever told was just like, don't say that. Don't talk about that. That's not appropriate. And no one really understood why. So we just got told, I was like, your mother and I just grew up that way. We were just told that this is not appropriate. This is not right. Don't say this. This is, this is embarrassing. Shame on you. How dare you? And then, then as a result, the next thing that happens is you decide to break that taboo or you see that taboo getting broken and then you become obsessed with breaking the taboo. So then there's like this obsession with sex. It's got to be everywhere. And every time someone says penis, everyone has to giggle for 400 minutes. And then every, you know, and like everyone's got to like turn everything into that. And as a society, we obviously do not have a working, healthy relationship to this thing, to this natural thing. And like to the point where I like didn't even want to talk about this stuff on the air, which is so ridiculous because clearly everyone has sex. And so um, it it just really made me it really struck me as interesting. And so then the next question, I, so then the conversation went on and this may get to the a question a lot of listeners have. Georgia goes, she says. Um, oh, but this this part where people where she answers the random like weird sex questions that that seventh graders have, she was like, um, that's that's only that's not what the curriculum is that we did that last semester like the mechanics of sex. This semester is all about consent. That's all we talk about is like various forms of consent, what consent is, how consent can be discussed, and all the questions around it, and all the confusing parts about it, and how to address it. And so this part where we do the question and answer is only just like this tiny little section at the beginning of class. And so I was like, well, so when you do this question and answer stuff, do people like how did how did the group respond at the beginning? Do people is it are people giggling? Is it whatever? She was like, well, I mean, obviously, at the beginning, it was really like people would laugh. The first time someone said like whatever funny sex word that you weren't supposed to say in school Everyone just laughed and, you know, but the teacher just kind of waited us out. And then she was like, but by literally by like the second week, no one, it was just class. It was just school for everyone. No one was really like freaked out by these words or obsessed with these things. And, and I don't know. And then she returned back to her thing. Like, so why it makes me, it keeps making me wonder why is everyone so panicked about it? And I, 
I don't know. I've just been th- read that conversation just happened like three hours ago, and I've just been turning it over and over in my head and trying to get a handle on how I feel about all of it. But I think, and I want to hear what other people think. I think that part of why where we're so confused about sex is that we grew up being having being totally unclear about how to talk about it, and so there's so communication suffers, and a lot of shitty things can happen when there's bad communication in the realm of something that has such potential for damage. And it's kind of impressive to me that it seems like at least what I'm seeing, these kids like are have a much easier time communicating about it. They don't view the talking about it as any kind of barrier whatsoever. And I think that bodes well. There's one thing I wonder, and I, I can't tell if this is just me being a prude. Like maybe this is just me being uptight about talking about sex. But when you the the good thing about the anonymous suggestion box or the anonymous question box is that then like if you have a question then you can get your question answered by a authority figure who will give you a straight answer. Does it also have the effect that like the kids who are the most advanced and who have the most sophisticated questions get to sort of put their questions in front of a room full of kids, some of whom are not at the point where they're even thinking about those questions yet? Like there's kids in that room well, this, maybe yeah. who, who, who hadn't even thought that there might be a taste of cum. You know what I right, mean? Right, right, yeah, right. Right. Well, this hurt? is, I mean, this, yeah, that's, thank you. That's exactly, so that's the problem we had. <laughs> so when they were in, when they were in elementary school, they had puberty education in fifth grade, not sex ed, but puberty ed. And puberty ed was very focused on, here's how your body's changing. Here's what a period is. Here's a, you know, and so like the, all that happened and they took those classes together. Like when I was a kid. Our crew cut ass gym teacher took all the boys aside and like mumbled a few things and then was like, use a condom and then just put us back in, you know, in general population. And so we didn't understand any of it. And what happened in my kids' elementary school is that um, they had this like a semester long puberty ed class taught by this woman who was really great. Like she met with all the parents beforehand. We loved her. We thought she was so funny, so smart, so good at teaching this material to this age group. And so Ezra took that class first. Georgia hadn't taken it. And then Ezra would get in the car and he'd just be like, blah, 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 penis, blah, 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 masturbation. And I'd be like, no, stop it, stop it. Like, you're done. you know, your sister is like third grade. She's not ready for this. But it, but it really, it really made me question. I don't know. It just, it was confusing and I never really got to an answer, but it did make me wonder like that, that is a fear that a person's going to be introduced to some content that they're not able, that they shouldn't be introduced to. But then it's like, well, why shouldn't they be introduced to it? I mean, with a fifth grader and a third grader, that's more of an issue, but with a room full of all seventh graders, it does make me wonder if that's even a problem. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think if there's, if there are some, kids that are there, then they all benefit from learning because it's not like you can put the kids who aren't there yet in a bubble and not have them exposed to kids who are thinking about sex and talking about sex and perhaps starting to have sex. They're going to hear about it. uh, And wouldn't you rather they get information earlier, accurate information earlier before they even thought of the question than terrible through the grapevine information in the lunchroom um, after they thought of the question, and that's actually what their education is, you know? I mean, I, I, to me, I only see upside in them having accurate uh, information from a trusted adult sooner <laughs> rather than later. I really do. I, I only, now as, you know, it, it makes a difference. My kids are a little older. Uh, my son in particular is in a relationship, so I think about this stuff all the time, but like we, talked about sex when he was really young and like he had a really great education around it and I I remember like around that same age a huge part of the curriculum there was a consent stuff and there was also like 
uh, the conversation around, um, and I, I know it was designed around the consent stuff, around pleasure stuff, where like if it's not fun for both people, it's not right. Like that was part of the conversation. And I remember talking mm. about thinking like how smart mm-hmm. is it to frame it that way? Like it's a smart thing to mm. do. Uh, and it's a healthy thing to do, you know, in a way. But I, I will just take umbrage with one thing you said, Carvel. Even if we were all really open about it all the time, penises are still really funny. And I would still probably do it before <laughs> said it. This is true. This is true. I mean, it, but like I hear like I hear where Gabe is coming from because that I, I just I did I don't have an answer. It just raised all these questions for me as it like it's like why okay, so like if a kid is like doesn't know algebra and then they get to seventh grade and the people are doing algebra and they're balancing equations, we're not like why you know, don't expose my kid to algebra yet because you know, it's like, well, that's what you're supposed to know by seventh grade is this is what we're learning. And I'm not saying it's an exact metaphor, but it makes me wonder specifically how this content is how and why it should be treated differently. I mean, I think it's and unavoidable. It's, because, it's unavoidable that sex has emotional weight to it that's different from algebra, right? That that like kids and adults and everybody has feelings about sex that like that's intrinsic to the subject. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing to talk about. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't educate kids about it. It doesn't mean that it's shameful. Um, but it does mean that it's not like neutral information and and that you might want to be aware of uh, what information you're presenting to kids of at what age and, and in what way. Now, what Rebecca points out is that kids are also getting their information through all of these back channels that are much more chaotic and crazy than having a teacher answer yes. questions from a box yes. in front of the class. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and I'm sure that's absolutely right. Um, I, I, I do sort of just wonder as a kid who, like I remember being a kid who – as we were all sort of finding out about this stuff, was like, whoa, that's a bit heavy. Uh, um, I do wonder if, like, I could have been sitting in that classroom and felt like, whoa, this is all. This all feels like a bit much right now. Um, on the other yeah, hand, I wonder like, about that. Yeah, Be- they're getting because it part of the reason I, th- well, part of the reason I think that I that I felt like it was a bit much and a bit heavy was because it was always attached to like secret back alley stuff and shady grownups who showed me shit that they shouldn't have. That that was the way that I came to understand it. So I came to understand sex as a whole as like this illicit fucked up thing that shady people did and introduced to you in ways that they shouldn't. And there was no normalization of it. It it never that never changed over the course of my life. That was always the context. No no like it was it wasn't until I was like well into my 20s and in the Bay Area before someone like in a clean well lit place talked openly about the intricacies of sex in my presence. And that I was like, well I god damn it, I wish someone had done this a long time ago. I'd probably feel a lot more a lot less freaked out <laughs> by a lot more things, you know? And like, I don't know that that's the case for everyone. And like, this is, you know, this thing, like it had a consent at the beginning. We went through the curriculum. We sort of did everything. I didn't, I remembered about the question box. I didn't, I was surprised. I mean, I didn't know that this was going to be in the question box, but it shouldn't be surprising because this is the kind of stuff kids are asking about. And the stuff that they're asking about is the stuff that, the rumor stuff that we didn't know the answer to when I was in that. I mean, I, I thought you could get mouth pregnant well into middle school. Like, I didn't have a grown-up I could ask that to. There was no grown-up I could ask that to. There was no Google I could ask that to. There was nothing. I just had to, like, wait until someone came and disabused me of that notion. And then I felt really embarrassed and ashamed for having thought that in the first place because it was like you were, you know, some older kid had to be like, no, you idiot, that's not blah, 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 you know. And so the whole thing just sucked. And I feel like the content is always going to be out there, and I, I wonder... I mean, like, I hear your point, but I wonder if it's, like, not at least better that that people talk about things in a way that is open and direct and honest and complete rather than this, like, weird, illicit way that we learned about it. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right, before we move on, let's do the business. As always, if you have a question that you would like us to answer on the show, leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or you can send us an email at momanddadatslate.com. As a reminder, we have moved our Facebook presence. I keep talking about how everybody should leave the old mom and dad are fighting page and join the Slate Parenting Facebook group. Uh, I think I'm going to stop talking about it because it's so cool and fun and lively and active in there that I don't want any more people uh, coming in because they could only make it worse. So whatever you do, do not join the fun, engaging discussion at facebook.com slash groups slash Slate Parenting. And certainly don't search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. Uh, I want to tell you about another great Slate show. It's called Working. It's our show about what people do all day. Uh, In the past, the hosts have interviewed a schooner captain, a community internet organizer, a hair entrepreneur, and Stephen Colbert. Uh, You should especially check out the recent episodes, How Does a Drag Queen Work?, Uh, an interview with Ms. Cracker, who's now a contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race, and also the episode How Does a Miniature Therapy Horse Work about the day job of a very special 100-pound horse named Magic. That show is called Working. Search for Working wherever you get your podcasts. On Slate Plus today, uh, we're going to hear from Carvel about his son Ezra's pursuit of a diagnosis around ADD and ADHD. Uh, Here's a little teaser of that segment. I felt like I was a bad person. And Ezra feels like he's a bad person. And we, and like, we're trying to like change that and communicate that, but I don't know that we can. To hear that segment and another like it every week, sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for your first year. You get an extended ad-free version of every episode of this show and other great Slate podcasts. And you also help us make this show. Uh, go to slate.com slash mom and dad plus and join Slate Plus today. Let's take a question. This was emailed to us by a listener. It's being read for us by Slate Culture intern Lena Wilson. Dear mom and dad are fighting. I'm a mom of a two and a half year old girl. Shortly after she was born, she was diagnosed with a micro deletion of her DNA. It's pretty rare, which is part of my question. So if you read the small paragraph of information in the literature, which is what doctors usually do when I mention it, it mentions physical and mental disabilities, bipolar disorder, autism, etc. None of these describe my daughter. However, we do remain on high alert as she grows for bipolar disorder and autism. My question is, while we want her teachers to help us monitor for abnormalities, we don't want them to box her in. Our pediatrician has even said there's a risk of people assuming things about her if they know of the deletion when she goes to elementary school, i.e. not challenging her in school. We started her in daycare this year, and we didn't share her history with the teachers, but we did with the school and the paperwork. Her teachers and I did have discussions around some of my concerns, and we did have early intervention come in for services at their suggestion. When we did the team meeting, I gave more specific information I have on the deletion to her teachers. I apologize for hiding it from them, although they understood my reasoning. The issues she currently has relate to chewing, social anxiety, and some sensory issues, but not anywhere near what is described in the literature. I'd prefer to discuss her specific issues. 
I know there's an underlying fear of her being put into special ed and not needing it, although if she needed it, we would accept it and deal with it. I know it's a dumb fear, but I don't want her to be defined by a diagnosis. I guess my question is, what's your take on that? Do I share from the start? Do I not and bring it up only when necessary? Am I being dishonest or am I protecting my child? This relates to a lot of situations, elementary school, gymnastics class, as they ask about conditions as well, etc. My husband and I both have concerns about sharing it, although we can't explain these feelings well. Sincerely, Melissa. Okay. Um, thanks for this letter. This is a really interesting situation and an interesting problem. First of all, it, it doesn't seem complicated to me that you might have qualms about immediately presenting all of the information that you have about your daughter's genetic condition when the information that you have is so ambiguous and and so unclear and the way in which it connects to her present experience is is impossible to ascertain um it it definitely seems like if you if the first thing you do when you introduce a kid to people who are going to be working with her or taking care of her or teaching her gymnastics is oh well she has what's called a, a, a micro deletion in her dna and that can lead to autism and other kinds of conditions and so let's be on the lookout for these things um inevitably that's going to color the way people see her now we might say well it shouldn't color the way people see her or it shouldn't color the way people see her in any negative ways um but i think we know that the world isn't like that and that um if you if you frame people in that way then then you are cueing other people to to treat them in a particular set of ways uh and those ways might be helpful and appropriate and they might not be helpful and they might not be appropriate and so i think it makes sense that you're wondering well when do we give other people this information and and when do we only tell them the things that we're actually certain about which is this is our daughter here's how old she is she has these issues with chewing and sensory stuff and and so on um and it it so it makes sense to me that this is a that this is a concern. In terms of when you should actually be telling people, Rebecca, tell me what you think about this. Well, for one, I if if your daughter goes to public school, um, there's no way they're going to put her in special ed unless they feel they absolutely have to. It is really difficult for parents who want to get their kids extra services to get them. And I'm not saying this happens all the time, but it often happens where, you know, schools um, are often reticent to give kids IEPs and, and, and put them in special programs. However, um, there is some benefit to there can be some benefit anyway, depending on your, your school situation, to um, setting up what's called a 504 with your school. I'm not a super expert on this, except I've been through it with uh, uh, one of our kids, Teddy, um, which is basically that it, it basically just says this is what is going on with the kid. And these are the this is the agreement that we make with teachers and all the teachers know about it. Um, and Teddy's 504 that he still has in ninth grade has it's really evolved. It evolves over time. It's a living document. And right now what it basically says is if you think he's in real trouble in your class and is getting to a point where he can't um, or won't be able to catch up if he hasn't handed in assignments and you feel like it's getting beyond what you think he can handle and catch up in, please make sure to loop us in before you might loop other parents in because we know this is like a long-term pattern, yada, yada, yada. So it's, it's kind of loose right now. Um, but I will say that... Um, I, I think that this writer inner is is introspective enough to understand that some of these issues about telling teachers in particular might kind of be about her fears about having a kid who potentially someday may need more, may need something different, and how difficult a journey 
maybe she's seen other people go through around that or, you know, having a kid that people label as different, that kind of thing. That's all super understandable. But if you have a good relationship with your daughter's school and a good relationship with your teachers and that relationship includes things like saying, um, I really want my daughter to be challenged. Uh, you know, I, I don't want you to put her in a box. Uh, not Having them not have the information if they do notice something, not having the information won't won't allow them to be able to be helpful and communicate with you. So I don't think it's necessary for you to tell her gymnastics instructor everything about her or any kid when, when your kid starts gymnastics class. But on the school side, I don't know. I err on the side of, of more just putting giving more information, being more communicative and being clear. You can be clear about what you're afraid of happening, too. And, you know, if. If your school is proactive, if you have a good relationship with them, they should take that into account as well. Yeah. I mean, my, I, I also think that it's not as complex. I mean, I, I think there's a lot there, but I think strategically, I would also not tell people about this. I mean, I would say, I, I don't know that I would go into detail. I would be very judicious about how I, how I, sort of flagged my kid in the relationship with other with like other adult caregivers like in the, like in the case that Rebecca pointed out if I felt like I needed to be warned maybe slightly ahead of time if the kid was struggling in some way academically I might just say that I might not say why I might not say necessarily I would say that like you know we're we're some like we're worried uh, about their ability to keep up sometimes and we think they're okay but we want to make sure and so we're keeping an eye on it so if you see anything let us know but I I do think that <clears throat> even people that you have good relationships with and even institutions that you have good relationships with there's just always factors at play that you don't quite uh you know know about and I think that what you're talking about is not something, but the potential for something. And um, I think it should be discussed openly when and if it becomes something that actually has an impact, but not necessarily before it has an impact is my feeling. Gabe, what do you think? Yeah, that seems right to me as well, that like if if you are watching her closely. We're all watching our kids closely. But if you know a particular set of things that you're looking out for and you're checking in with her teachers a little bit and they know that you want to be kept in touch, that seems more important and maybe more productive than giving them a list of conditions that there's some chance that she might have due to a condition that nobody really knows very much about and that she hasn't uh, evidenced any very clear signs of yet. Um, mm -hmm. That kind of close observation seems seems more useful and and less likely to be counterproductive to me. Yeah, but the but the thing with the communication is that the I mean the other side of the coin is accountability, right? And and process, and you know if there is some sort of like say very minor difference. I mean she she mentioned chewing, right? Um, without that piece of information, how is a teacher to know? to, for instance, not like correct a behavior. I mean, chewing maybe isn't the best use of our head, but how to try to correct or develop a behavior that uh, just might be more difficult. Like, how is a teacher supposed to know um, how to know whether or not something isn't as it used to be and that there might be an underlying reason for it? I mean, there is some comfort in uh, having some kind of documentation with the school. And the reason that I've, you know, been comfortable with the 504 process is because it also allows me to be able to say, like, when the thing that I've asked for hasn't happened, like I can say, you know, why hasn't this happened? Because it's, you know, it's in the 504. It's the agreement that we all signed. 
at the beginning of the year, it actually it's a, it's a helpful tool on on both sides of the coin. And and the other thing that I think you know this this mom should know is that. There are a lot of parents at your daughter's school asking themselves the same questions, and there are a lot of kids with notes in their file about things that teachers might want to be on the lookout for or, you know, behavioral issues or ADHD or uh, a, a disability that, you know, may not be super obvious, you know, upon meeting a kid. There are a lot of parents and a lot of kids in your situation. So maybe it'll give you some comfort to know that, but... I don't know. I, I I think it's fine that we're all on different pages here, but um, I I just imagine if I were that teacher, you know, what if I didn't know, and what if I thought there was a problem? Sort of the discomfort in trying to communicate to that to that that to this mom might lead to a worse situation than hmm. not feeling like I could communicate it because it was something that I had a little bit of knowledge about to begin with. Does that make well, sense? But that is the problem is that there's – well, yeah, but it does. But that's the, that is the problem is that there's so little knowledge that it makes me wonder that if like it – like, I mean, it's one of those situations where like a little bit of knowledge is worse than none at all. Like mm-hmm. it isn't like we understand this whole complete thing and here's all this information. Here's all – everything it, it totally means and here's what you do about it and here's how you deal with it. But we're just not going to tell you because we're afraid you're going to judge us. It's – the, the, the yeah. actual issue that this parent is facing is the lack of clarity and information. That's right. So I right. feel like that as a teacher that puts you in – that's like not helpful. It's just like someone being like – there's a terrible thing, but I don't know where it is or how close to you or what it's going to do. So just thought I'd let you know. Right. Anyway, enjoy your work. Like mm-hmm. it's just, it's not helpful information. That's kind of the way I feel. About what it. we know is this is and a so, t- And then, and, well, the flip, and then the problem is that as a teacher, you know, and again, like, I don't know a specific teacher that some people are great, some people are not, but you have to think of things as, as an institution because school is unfortunately an institution. People will then fill in the unknowns with a lot of stuff and a lot of that stuff might be unhelpful. Right. So I feel like Mm. this is information for the parent at this point. What we know is this is a two and a half year old girl who there's a possibility that she's going to develop physical and mental disabilities, bipolar disorder, autism, et cetera. In a way that applies to every two and a half year old kid, right? Every kid might end up developing disabilities, might end up um, being diagnosed with autism or with bipolar disorder. Uh, the teacher, you want teachers to be watching out for signs of those things. But until this kid manifests actual signs of the things, does it help the teachers necessarily to be on especially high alert for any sign of those things? Right. I can see in some situations it might, but I can also see in a lot of situations where that would just make it harder for them to do what this kid needs to, to help them develop and grow. Hmm. Yeah, it's a tough one, though. I, I I hope this has been helpful in some way. Um, as you can see, we don't all of us immediately agree on on. We all have different instincts about how you might go ahead with this. So, um, at least uh, you should know that if you're feeling confused and uncertain, well, um, so are the hosts of Slate's Parenting Podcast. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. 
Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now is the time on our show when we recommend things to you. Rebecca, do you recommend something? Yes. uh, Mine is a video. It is a news report from a local news station, KOB-TV in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I have watched this video probably a hundred times in the last week. I shared it in the newsroom where I work, and I've made my kids watch it a bunch, and we all think it's hilarious. Uh, This intrepid reporter, Caleb Jones, um, this is one of those things where you can tell he was sent on an assignment in the morning and then, you know, at some point during the day, uh, decided, like, there's no, there's nothing here. But his editor was just like, no, we really need this story for the 6 o'clock news. Um, and the story was that there was a Google Street image in their city where someone had pulled their pants down and mooned the camera. So uh, Caleb Jones <laughs> does this news report with so much humor and graceful writing. At one point, he does a reenactment of the scene uh, of, the, of the mooning. You know, it really isn't until you come here to the scene that you really get a firm grasp on the fact that our mooner was equal parts opportunist and quick thinker. Based on our reconstruction, it's likely he relied on that distraction caused by those middle finger flingers over here before walking over, resting his bag right here on this ledge, resourceful, before bending over dropping trow to deliver that midday moon. At one point, he says, you know, I really haven't learned much today, but we all have to admit it's a, it was a pretty funny picture. And it is just it's exactly what you want a reporter to do when they've been sent out like on a ridiculous and stupid story. And it makes for like a really fun video uh, to watch with your kids, because if you've ever seen like a terrible local news fail, you know how funny they can be and you know how much kids love talking about butts. So uh, I will post a link to this video on the um the, the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash Slate Parenting. I'll make sure to post the video there so you could all check it out. But if you want to Google it, uh, look up KOB TV, Caleb Jones, um, Moon, <laughs> Google Street View. And that's that's pretty much all you need to find it. And I guarantee your kids are going to love this little news package. Nice. Uh, all right. I have a recommendation, which is something we did for the first time this weekend. I think we did this for the first time since our daughter was born. Um, which is we hired a babysitter in the afternoon and went out on a daytime afternoon date instead of like getting the babysitter to put the kids to bed and then sit in your house and watch TV while you're out having dinner. And going out on a date in the afternoon is so fun because uh, you are not exhausted and you're not like desperately trying to cram it in and and the kids have fun with the babysitter and we went to the Museum of Modern Art and then we went out and had dinner uh, and then we came home just in time to put them to bed and then we got to watch television ourselves instead of paying somebody else to do it. Um, so my recommendation is uh, get a babysitter and go out on a date in the afternoon. That is wonderful. It was great. Because your babysitter can also do stuff with your kids in the afternoon, right? right. Like in a way that they, they can't at night. Right. They can't at night. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. That's really good. 
Um, I'm going to recommend a book that we just received, and the kids have almost ha- have barely had a chance to look at it. But when I was researching the Black Panther piece for the New York Times, I talked to uh, a professor named John Jennings, who had so many great things to say about the history of black comic books. But um, he also told me in that conversation that he had been working on this book called Black Comics Returns, which is basically a long, uh, uh, like a, a beautiful coffee table compilation of comic book art by all these black artists over the course of the last you know, 20 years or so. And um, it's just a beautiful book. And we just got it in the mail. We ordered from the Kickstarter project that they had launched maybe a year ago to get this thing funded. It's now out in the world. It's on Amazon. And um, we just, because it came like, and we had to leave the house in the morning, we just briefly had the briefest time of looking at it. But already there's like so much to get into. So if you are raising a person who's into comic books, this is like such a um, such a great compendium of all these different kinds of artists. And I guarantee that any kid who's in, or adult who's interested in comics will find something in here that they're like, wow, I've never seen this artist before. I didn't know you could draw like that. I didn't know you could tell stories like that. Let me find out more. So it's a good way to get to find all new directions to go into with comic books. It's called Black Comics Returns. It's by Damian Duffy, Ashley Woods, and John Jennings. And I'll, we'll put the link on the Slate page. Awesome. Uh, and that's our show. If you have a question you would like us to address, you can call us at 424-255-7833. Uh, let us know what you thought of the show at that Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Slate Parenting, or just search for uh, Slate Parenting on Facebook. Our show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoy. I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll see you next week. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.